This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast. I'm Norman Swan and Tegan Taylor will be along later. Today, the biggest cause of productive years of life lost in Australia and its way out in front of heart disease and cancer. Just as we emerge from the worst of the COVID second wave, could we be in store for a season of thunderstorm asthma events worse than last time? Research showing bariatric surgery for obesity extends lives, but Australian surgeons are asking why it isn't more available in the public sector. A couple of years ago, in a special health report feature called The Glasgow Effect, we talked about the life expectancy gap in the west of Scotland and how it wasn't due to older people losing some years of life. It was because younger people were dying tragically early, and not from heart disease or cancer, but of drug use and mental health issues. Well, data released last week by the Australian Bureau of Statistics showed that we are little different. The issue causing the greatest loss of productive years of life last year, pre-COVID, was suicide. Professor Ian Hickey is at the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Welcome back to the Health Report, Ian. Thank you, Norman. So talk us through this data. This is the table that everyone in Australian health should read. Intentional self-harm led to 115,000 lost years of potential life last year, 115,000 in one year. Ischemic heart disease, which we always talk about as the biggest killer, led to 78,000. And in fact, the press release put out by the Bureau of Statistics last week, uh, last week drew attention to dementia, which in fact only accounted for 7,000. So, of course, this has got to do with we live, most of us, long lives now and may die of heart disease or cancer eventually. In fact, life expectancy for men in Australia is now 79 years and for women 85 years. But the average death for suicide is 44. So and talk- in fact, in the, in the last decade, young people's deaths have increased. So talk us through this 115,000 figure. How does it get to that point? Well, you could think for every single person, what would they have lived to? And for Australian men, that would be 79. For Australian women, that would be 85. And then you look at when people die for any particular cause of death. And the average age for suicide, the median age is 44. And a very high proportion of that now is under the age of 30 particularly in the 18 to 30 age range. So you work out for each person then how many years could they have lived? If you multiply that by the total number of people that died that way, and very tragically, more than 3,300 people died by suicide last year, you can see on average, if they're up in the 30 to 40 years of life lost, then you get up to this 115,000 figure. And that's really, really different then to the causes of death when you're much older, when there's, although it may be equally tragic and there may be important issues to still be addressed in those areas, very few years of productive life are lost from most of ischemic heart disease or cancer. And the age of suicide is falling. It's falling. So if you track over the last 10 years, or sadly I'll say, first of all, the rate of suicide in Australia pre-COVID for 2019 was still rising, as it has been over some years now. And particularly if you look after the last decade, then the rates of suicide adjusted per 100,000 have been rising in younger cohorts over the last decade. And that matches other national survey and international survey data about increased rates of anxiety and depression in young people. So something's going on in young people that has been going on for a decade and pre-COVID was already leading to increased deaths as well as increased lives interfered with by anxiety, depression and substance misuse. But what you're saying is we don't know exactly why. No, everyone contends why, so social media gets blamed, all sorts of social change, whatever is going on socially, and it's not clear why, what we know is that it's changing and in the wrong direction. And that was pre-COVID. 
The modelling I'm associated with, which accurately predicted these actual outcomes this year, suggests that in the COVID environment with changes in education, changes in employment, changes in social dislocation, it may well get worse. So it's a real wake-up call. What are we doing now at a public health level and what we do at a health services level to try and reduce this degree of impact? So what does this mean for our priorities? Well, it'd be really interesting to go out in the wider world and just simply ask people, do you realise what is the most common cause of productive life lost, economically, socially? And I think people will often go back with cancer and things they're afraid of and go, no, 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 actually mental health, suicide, drug and alcohol addiction, they're the really big issues. So I think our health priorities, our health research priorities, our public health priorities and our health service priorities, people will be really surprised because mental health accounts for about 7% only of total health spending in Australia. And that's pretty true internationally as well. So mental health and suicide prevention have never been the really big priorities they should be if you care about premature life lost, if you care about the social and economic productivity that comes from losing lives early. And you and I have spoken about the modelling before. The government's still not using that modelling. No. So the modelling is also not only predicting what is the future, it's choosing what would be most likely to change this. I mean, it's, it's all very well to track these figures and produce them on a Friday afternoon. This came out last Friday afternoon. The real question is, what would make a difference? And our modelling goes to immediately in suicide prevention. There are two things in the COVID environment, economic and educational support, particularly for young people, but also following people up after attempted suicide. That has the biggest impact immediately and would save lives this year and next year. So, you know, we've in Australia reacted really quickly, and as is demonstrated today in Victoria, effectively to the physical health threat of the virus. I'd suggest that 2021, 2022 is all going to be about the mental health effects so, of this economic and social change. So suicide in young people is a priority of the Prime Minister. What was in the budget that goes to an evidence-based approach to this? Very little. So nothing specific. The, the Prime Minister has received another report from the National Mental Health Commission and his suicide prevention advisor, Christine Morgan. There's the Productivity Commission report, which has been sitting with the Treasurer since the 30th of June. The government has said, and said in fact in the Senate again today, it has that particular report and it will be released in due course. Well, I'd suggest there's some urgency about that due course. Things were not good pre-COVID. It was already actually getting worse. And now COVID has a whole additional challenge that we need to face. And much of that is being played out in young people. 45% of the job losses in young people. It's affected women. It's affected regional and rural Australia. So we would really hope that the government does actually take effective actions. And to take your point, they're evidence-based actions that would be likely to change these numbers. Just briefly, last week on the Health Report, we talked about evidence about brief interventions in the emergency department that could help in terms of connecting people, uh, following them through uh, and providing support. Um, do they work? Yes. I'm so glad you emphasised that last week. They do work. What happens in emergency departments and follow-ups and one of the big recommendations we've made in a collection of mental health stakeholders to the government is that should be in the order of about $800 million nationally. It works. In the emergency department, proper protocols, just like for heart disease, just like for other problems in the emergency departments, and the effective follow-up. So those brief interventions, focus on emergency departments, proper follow-through, save lives. Ian, thanks for joining us. 
Thank you so much, Norman. Professor Ian Hickey is co-director of Health and Policy at the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. And if anything we've discussed um, just upsets you or you think you need support, you always can call Lifeline on 131114. You're with RN's Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. Our email address for your questions and comments is healthreport at abc.net.au. It's an off-cited statistic that one in three Australians are obese, putting them at higher risk of conditions like diabetes, heart disease and indeed cancer. But significant weight loss that's actually durable is elusive. The treatment that most reliably yields large lasting weight loss is bariatric surgery, which, where the body's ability to take in or absorb food is dramatically reduced. A new paper from a large long-term study is shedding more light on how long people live after having bariatric surgery compared to those who don't, speaking of life expectancy. Tegan Taylor's been taking a look. Hi, Tegan. Hi, Norman. So tell us, what do they do in this study? This is a big study that's been going for a really long time. So the earliest uh, people in the study were recruited back in the 1980s. And basically, they've been following these people uh, since their surgery. So they've had 2,000 people who had weight loss surgery, and they matched them with people with similar conditions, similar levels of obesity and disease, and they followed them over these past few decades. As only the Scandinavians can do. (laughs) We love talking about Scandinavian studies on this show, don't we? Mm. And they also compared them to a a large reference group that was sort of meant to represent the general population and found that the people who had the surgery lived an average of three years longer than the matched controls, the, the the obese people who didn't have the surgery but both of those groups didn't live as long as the general population did. So having been obese for a significant period of your length of, uh, period of your life is a problem in terms of you, of the years of life that you're going to lose. Yes. But bariatric surgery does help. That's right. You're able to to get regain some of those years. Did and they, did they control for weight loss? In other words, people in the people who didn't receive bariatric surgery might have been on diets and exercise and might have lost weight? Do they control for weight loss? Well, actually, that that reference group was given conventional obesity treatment. So, yeah, they were at least trying to lose weight, but they found that over the course of the study, those people's BMIs have remained about the same, whereas the people who had the surgeries, their BMIs dropped and then kind of regained, but sort of found at about the eight-year mark, they found sort of an equilibrium that was significantly lower than their starting weight, which, as you said at the start just now, is the real challenge with weight loss. It's not that hard to get people to lose weight. It's very, very difficult for them to remain at that lower weight. And it's interesting what they didn't die of or what what they reduced the the risk of, which was around about 30%. It was both heart disease and cancer. That's right. And, And I mean, that doesn't really come as a huge surprise because we know that those are conditions that are increased. You increase your likelihood of getting them by having obesity. But um, it's interesting that, like you said before, these people have lived a lifetime in bigger bodies before they've had the, the surgery and it was still able to make a difference at that adult surgery stage. And how safe was the surgery and how often did people need to have repeat surgery? Because in these registries that the Swedes have, they can measure that sort of thing. Yeah. So the surgeries that they're doing, that they did in the study, they were doing them sort of 20, 30 years ago. They're much different to the surgeries that we do today for, um, for the bariatric surgeries that we do today. So they weren't laparoscopic surgeries then. And they did a lot more gastric banding, which isn't done as often now. These days, we're much more likely to see people have the gastric bypass, uh, sorry, to, to have the sleeve gastrectomy where they take out about 80% of the stomach or the gastric bypass, which has been done for a really long time as well. And the, the rates, but even then, the rates were pretty good, even though they're old techniques. 
Oh, I've lost that chart, Norman. You'll have well, to remind I'll, me. I'll, I'll, I've got it in front of me. <laughs> it's only 0.2% in terms of the three-month mortality rates, which is small by major surgery standards, and only 3% required repeat surgery. So it's pretty pretty good results. That's right. And the, the, the experts that I was talking to here in Australia are saying that 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 the surgeries that we do today are even safer and have even better outcomes than what they were doing back then. So uh, it is, it's no doubt it's a major surgery that people aren't going to enter into lightly, but it's, it's actually got quite a good safety profile. And what are the implications for Australia, do you think? Well, there's a few things to take from this. One is that just to reframe the the risk factor. So obviously, if someone's considering the surgery for themselves, it's really important for them to be able to make an informed decision. But that um, this is showing that it can be quite safe. It can lengthen your life. Um, and it is, um, it's not for everyone, but it is a really good tool that provides long-term weight loss. And it adds to a, quite a large body of evidence that these surgeries don't just improve health measures and quality of life when you're alive, which there is evidence to show that it does that. It also helps, helps you to live longer. Um, but what... One of the one of the issues in Australia that the experts that I spoke to mentioned is that one of the biggest problems is that weight and the health implications of it carry a real stigma that it's sort of seen to be by the by the person themselves and then often even by their caregivers and the people around them that if they could just pull themselves up by their own bootstraps they could get a handle on this or if they just had better self-control they could get a handle on this but for many many people it's genetic. They haven't chosen it for themselves and that these tools should be considered as treating this as a disease, just the same way that we would treat any other disease like cancer. Well, we're going to come to that in the next story. Tegan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tegan Taylor is a health reporter with the ABC Science Unit and my co-host on CoronaCast. So 90%, talking about access here, 90% of bariatric surgery in Australia is performed in the private sector, which is a problem since obesity is more likely to affect people who lack economic resources. Last year, only 22 public hospitals performed bariatric surgery, and only 10 of those had numbers that would give the hospitals enough experience to keep safety and quality high. And while there are lots of things that can be done for people struggling with the complications of obesity, such as diabetes, heart disease and cancer, surgery, as you've just heard, is effective. A group of surgeons in the Australian and New Zealand Metabolic and Obesity Surgery Society have developed a framework to allow the more widespread introduction of bariatric surgery into the public system. Ahmed Ali is, direct, is head of upper GI surgery, gastrointestinal surgery at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne and led this project for the society. Welcome to the Health Report, Ahmed. Thank you, Norman. Uh, lovely to be here. Now, given that there's a lot, and I've covered this before, that public hospitals do that wastes money, what's called low-value care, why are they holding out on this effective treatment? Are they just afraid that it opens the floodgates? Uh, well, Norman, that's a, a really uh, good question. And, and yes, the floodgate concern is part of it. But I think when we first started exploring this area, we realised there was, in fact, a number of barriers um, in accessing care in the public system for bariatric surgery. Clearly, there's a paucity of services. But one of the really important barriers that came up was that, in fact, policymakers uh, at, at state government levels and even at federal government levels understand the benefits of bariatric surgery. And there is actually goodwill in that regard. What was difficult was the how-to. Yes, the floodgate concern was part of it. How do we deliver bariatric surgery to patients that need it most or are most likely to benefit, how can we be sure of that 
And how do we do that in a sustainable way? There was clear uncertainty and confusion about that. And I think that creates some of the hesitancy in implementation. Well, let's go through what you came up with, because you did talk to health service managers in developing this framework. Who should get it in the public sector? Well, firstly, the, the task force was made of a very wide group of people. We had a consensus uh, nationally with national representation. We had representation from a number of obesity clinical stakeholder uh, organisations. And as you quite rightly mentioned, also from governance levels and health administration. Um, it is very heavily evidence-based. But when it comes to the area of being certain about how to deliver it to those most likely to benefit, as you can imagine, you can get into a wide range of debate. What we settled on was using the Edmonton staging system for obesity. Now, this is a relatively new idea. The traditional indi uh, indications for surgery uh, are, are sort of established from back in the 90s and haven't really been re-examined for a long time. What's unique about the Edmonton score is that it focuses on mortality as a uh, as an outcome. What is the risk of mortality at any particular stage of obesity and disease? Now, mortality is a very hard endpoint, and we can, of course, value things in many other ways. But this is something that's been validated. It's a clear endpoint. We can demonstrate saving of lives. And so it was incorporated into our selection well, we, process or the advice that we gave on selection for patients. So we probably don't, we don't have time to go through all that and we'll have a link to your framework on in the Health, Report, uh, Health Report's website. Uh, there are reasons why people shouldn't have surgery, aren't there? Oh, of course, surgery doesn't suit everybody and surgery uh, isn't for everybody. In fact, if you look at the uh, potential eligible population, that is the group of patients suffering obesity who potentially could benefit from surgery, it's around 1.4 million people in Australia. And clearly, we're not going to deliver surgery to 1.4 million people. Um, and even, in, uh, even with relatively good access, it's unlikely that more than 1% to 2% of patients will ultimately take up surgery. So you need to be prepared for surgery. It needs to be something that you feel is right for you. And there's a whole process for that. In terms of the um, hospitals... Do they need, I mean, it's not like you've got bowel cancer, you, you go in, the colorectal surgeon removes the bowel cancer, and then you go on to the oncology team. This, this you know, preoperative assessment, following people through to make sure they don't start homogenizing their French fries and things like that. Um, I mean, there's, there's more of an extended care around and a team-based care around bariatric surgery, is there not? And that, that yeah. presumably is something that public hospitals would have to build. Absolutely. And, and so this is something that's directly addressed within the framework. So we describe models of care, we emphasise the multidisciplinary nature of bariatric surgery and all of that. And importantly, preoperative assessment, a very large component of the framework, focuses on exactly what you just mentioned, and that is engagement from the patient in the entire process, not just the surgery itself, but in the entire process of lifestyle management, engagement with the clinicians and ongoing care. This is critical for the outcome of bariatric surgery. And again, when you're thinking about how do we deliver it um, to those most likely to benefit, education and engagement is a critical part of that process. Does that actually happen in the private sector, though? Or, and how much is it? It's just the individual surgeon delivering it and then walking away from it. I mean, I know that gastric banding's lost 
a lot of popularity amongst, amongst bariatric surgeons because it does require such intensive follow-up care and the band can come off and have problems and you've moved much more to the gastric sleeve operation. To what extent even does this happen in the private sector? Look, certainly the position of Ansmos and, and, uh, and the professional society is to absolutely emphasise the importance of multidisciplinary care and establish it as a standard of care. But this in, in, in many ways, Norman, is one of the reasons that it's vitally important that we increase bariatric surgery within our public system. This is the place where we train our surgeons. This is the way, place that we, we can monitor and develop standards. This is the area in which we can set these as absolutes and encourage further uptake of such an approach. So young having registrars that, training would, would see how it should be done. Absolutely. And, and, and having said that, though, I would say that many, many surgeons, certainly I would believe the majority of surgeons, do hold this as a philosophy. We can't enforce it absolutely, but we can educate it and we can promote it and having it in public will help enhance that. Which state's best at it at the moment in terms of providing it? In terms of public bariatric mm -hmm. surgery, Victoria is the best served currently, but Sorry. it is still lacking in absolute service numbers in terms of who could benefit and what the demand potentially is. Unfortunately, there are some states around the country that don't have any structured elective bariatric surgery programs, and that's a situation we really need to change. Let's hope the framework makes a difference. Ahmed, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Norman. Ahmed Ali is Head of Upper Gastrointestinal Surgery at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne. The peak of the hay fever season is nearly upon us, which brings with it the risk of a thunderstorm asthma event. It's been four years since the 2016 Melbourne thunderstorm asthma event, which resulted in over 3,500 emergency presentations, 35 ICU admissions and 10 deaths. We look back at this event and what we've learnt and what a 2020 thunderstorm asthma event might be like in the context of COVID-19. In this report by the ABC Sciences, Susanna Lyons. I do remember being quite hay fever and agitated in my sinuses. And at that time, we had big glass doors that would open out to a balcony just near our lounge room. And having those doors open to air the house after the warm day Michelle Griffiths describing her experiences during the 2016 thunderstorm asthma event in Melbourne. And I just remember just getting very tight in my chest and wheezing. And I've had a little bit of wheezing from asthma before just from exercise. However, it's different. It's just kind of like, oh, this isn't right. And I knew at that point that I needed to shut the doors because, you know, we have all of the air blowing through the house, which is like the worst thing you can do. And I did have my asthma pump. Luckily, I had one there. So I just remember being a bit kind of scared and obsessed about like trying to get my airways clear. Michelle had been diagnosed with mild asthma as a child, but she was shocked when she got thunderstorm asthma in 2010 and again in 2016. Melbourne's 2016 thunderstorm asthma event was the most catastrophic ever recorded worldwide. Tragically, 10 people uh, lost their lives associated with that event and there had been one or two reports of deaths associated with thunderstorm asthma previously in the distant past, but never so many on one night. Professor Joe Douglas is a physician in allergy and clinical immunology at the University of Melbourne and the Royal Melbourne Hospital. 
I think one of the big risks about thunderstorm asthma is that for many people it's completely unexpected and so they may not have awareness of or access to reliever treatment, the blue puffers, the reliever puffers or an action plan to keep themselves safe. And of course in the 2016 event and perhaps in those similarly earlier in 2010, emergency departments and emergency facilities were somewhat overwhelmed by the volume of asthma sufferers who presented. But Professor Douglas says we've learnt a lot from previous thunderstorm asthma events. I think it changed our perception of hay fever as being a benign but troublesome condition as being related to thunderstorm asthma, which can potentially overwhelm emergency departments. So I think it's caused us to recognise the risk of hay fever and asthma when they're together to try and remember people with asthma are at great risk of thunderstorm asthma and to really encourage both prediction so people can stay out of harm's way and also preventive treatment to keep people with asthma safe. Melbourne is known for the severity and regularity of its thunderstorm asthma events, but they've been reported in other parts of Australia too, including Wagga Wagga and Sydney. So what causes such events to occur? It's usually in Australia due to grass pollens, although in other places it can be due to other pollens and even funguses. They usually occur after a few days of high pollen count, usually about three days. They're usually warm days. They occur with a severe storm, so a change in humidity and a drop in pressure. We know that the bulk of people present within a few hours of the event passing, but the asthma admissions or asthma presentations remain very high for the subsequent day. So there's both an early acute phase and also a later phase of asthma as well, which fits with what we know about the allergic response to grass pollens. And are there any long-term effects for people who maybe suffer an asthma attack during these thunderstorm asthma events? So what we know has shown that people who have had thunderstorm asthma symptoms seem to have very unsettled asthma symptoms in the years subsequent to this, as if this is a trigger for worsening asthma overall. And so it does suggest that there's something very important about this initial exposure that might actually be triggering asthma symptoms or airway hyperresponsiveness in people. Airway hyperresponsiveness is a, a cardinal feature of asthma and I often describe it as the airway being twitchy, so super sensitive, more sensitive than someone who doesn't have asthma asthma to environmental triggers, things like allergens, but also things like cold air that will cause the airways to constrict. This year, we're approaching the height of the hay fever season with the added burden of the coronavirus pandemic, which troubles Professor Douglas. So I think the spectre of a uh, overwhelming emergency presentation in the setting of a potential COVID epidemic is particularly concerning because, as you know, emergency department resources are somewhat stretched by COVID and the necessity of managing people who are potentially infected. And that already is a drain on resources and every emergency department in Victoria has been reconfigured to manage that risk. Further overwhelming that with people with respiratory difficulties will make it even harder to manage a very big event. There are three things Professor Douglas would like people to remember this year. If you have hay fever and asthma, recognise that you could be at risk of thunderstorm asthma. Speak to your doctor, have an asthma plan and relieve a medication on hand so you know what to do if you have sudden asthma symptoms. Number two, heed the thunderstorm asthma warnings available in your local area. For example, warnings are available in Victoria on the Melbourne Pollen and Vic Emergency apps. And if a warning is in place, stay indoors at the time the thunderstorm is predicted. 
And the third one, I think we have to say in this time of COVID, is that some symptoms of COVID and hay fever overlap. And this year particularly, it will be really good to see people managing their hay fever well with antihistamines and also the nose brace to keep their symptoms under control. So there is no doubt then that uh, if they've got hay fever, they're not confusing it with COVID. Having reliever medication on hand is advice that Michelle has taken to heart. I can't remember the last time that I've had to have some of my asthma pump. So I could go through, you know, summer, autumn and winter with no allergies or anything like that. But when it hits spring, I am now very aware of it. And I do go and I buy new Ventolin. Just having it around gives me kind of peace of mind for those times just in case. Like we can't control the weather, but you can kind of have your asthma pump around. Michelle Griffiths sending that report by ABC Sciences. Uh, Susanna Lyons. Now, listen, don't just rely on your blue puffer. If you've got any asthma symptoms at all during the day or at night and you're coughing, coughing on exercise, talk to your GP about getting onto one of the brown puffers, one of the preventers there to actually treat the asthma itself. Because one of the reasons for the thunderstorm asthma event was that people thought they were okay with their asthma, but in fact, they weren't. And Tegan, that's all that Victoria needs now is a thunderstorm asthma event. My God. I know. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, making sure that's properly managed now is a uh, good protection for the future. It is indeed. So just to remind you, the email address to send in your questions and comments is healthreport at abc.net.au. What questions and comments have we got this week? Well, Andrea's had a comment about the segment that we did last week on meat-only diets. One of my favourite topics is... I don't know, just different weird diets. Um, And it sounds like Andrea's the same. She's making some points. She said, what's possible in terms of a diet that provides essential nutrients? It shouldn't be confused with what is an optimal diet for long-term health. And I think that's a really good point to make because it's possible to tick all the boxes, but it's not necessarily going to be the thing that gives you the longest possible life, is it? It is not, indeed. And it's complicated because... And this is what we talked about a few weeks ago, which is that how you cook, how you bring vegetables, herbs and other things together with things like virgin olive oil, do cook up essentially a a cocktail of antioxidants and other substances which are about living younger, longer. And Mm. a meat diet is probably not going to cut that. It's not going to give you that. And in fact, you're thinking of paleo diets even when there was truly a paleolithic diet, people were eating stuff that they were gathering as well, fresh herbs, fresh vegetables, and so on. So the notion that it was purely meat was is just wrong. Mm. And, and while you might be able to get away with it for a while, not forever. Yeah, and Andrea makes the additional comment that maybe if people are feeling better when they're following a meat-only diet, it might be because they have experience the benefits of eliminating things that might have been causing intolerances for them. And to that, I would just say, please, people, don't take your medical advice from a podcast. Go and talk to your doctor, because if you think that maybe you do have intolerances, you need to work with a professional to figure out what they are. Yeah. And they're less common than you think. So take gluten, for example. True gluten intolerance that you can measure is probably only 3% of the community. Mm. There's probably maybe another 15% of people who do not tolerate wheat that well, but it's not 50, 60, 70% of the community. And going on a gluten-free diet is not going to change your life that much. But if you think you've got multiple food intolerances, which are really quite rare... Um, you can really affect your diet seriously. So you just got to be careful about that. One reason that you might feel better on a meat-only diet is you might go a bit keto. 
and being on a ketogenic diet does, after two or three days, make you feel quite good, but it's not sustainable. Mm. And we've got an interesting letter here from Elna, who's had an experience at the dentist. They've gone to see their new dentist about headaches, teeth grinding and clenching. The dentist has done some tests to gather data, but also did a a strange test that Elna wasn't sure if it was the real deal or not. Uh, Tell me if you've ever heard of this, Norman. He got Elna to hold their arm out at their side and press upwards while the dentist pressed downwards. And then Elna had to open their mouth while the dentist placed his hand in front of Elna's mouth. And then the outcome was meant to be that if Elna stopped pressing upwards, then that was some sort of diagnostic win, but Elna didn't. And then the dentist said that the test wasn't working because their energy wasn't flowing right and Elna probably just didn't have a good night's rest. Is this complete hocus pocus or is there anything to this test to diagnose jaw clenching? I'm not aware of it. uh, Knowing that this question was coming, I, I researched it. And most people who talk about, so there's two or three things going on here. One is called bruxism, which you, you're grinding and clenching. The first thing I'll say is beware of dentists who've done a weekend course in what's called temporal mandibular joint dysfunction. They go off and do a course and then they offer their patients grinding of their teeth. And by the way, once you've had your teeth ground, there's no going back. I think my dentist did that to me. Right. <laughs> well, they're... You've just got to be really careful about this because there are some dentists who have been on a weekend course and think they know what to do. Diagnosing grinding, tooth grinding, bruxism, temporomandibular joint dysfunction is really about the history. It's about feeling the facial muscles. It's about examining the jaw properly. That's what it's about. Maybe sometimes x-rays to see whether or not there's tooth damage and cracks in the teeth. Temporomandibular joint dysfunction is controversial and it's got to be treated with care by somebody who's really experienced. You've got people offering to do joint replacements in the jaw. You know, be very careful before you let anybody touch your mouth or your jaw if you've got one of these problems. You can get mouth guards that are properly fitted. You know, your GP can talk to you, or, and indeed good dentists will talk to you about relaxation, whether or not you're under particular stress at the moment. And some people just do just grind their teeth and there may be a genetic element to that as well. So you just got to be super careful. And if anybody wants to actually do some surgery on it, including grinding your teeth, you need to talk to them about what their qualifications are for that because this is something that's highly specialised. But it can cause headaches, can't it, when you've got a lot of tightness in your jaw and you are clenching, especially at night? Sure. And it can cause cracked teeth. It's a serious issue and it's not a pleasant thing to do. And people with properly fitted mouth guards can get some relief of that, although some people find it really not that easy to hold the guard in their mouth. A comment here from Keith, who I think might be responding to the study that we talked about a few weeks ago about high-intensity interval training in older adults. And we made a comment in that story about how these people often lose fitness as they age. And Keith is saying, we only start to lose muscle in middle age because we exercise differently. And all things being equal, a healthy man can maintain muscle mass and add enough additional muscle for it to be obvious to other people, even into their early 70s. And Keith ends with the statement, the sarcopenia story, so muscle loss story, is one of surrender, despair, excuses and self-disempowerment, which I don't think really stacks up with the evidence. No, I think sarcopenia is a phenomenon of ageing, but it's not an inevitable part of ageing. And it is a way towards frailty, but you can do something about it. So where Keith is absolutely right is that if you maintain muscle strength, 
you exercise accordingly, so it's not just aerobic exercise, it's also muscle strengthening. You will minimise sarcopenia. In fact, you can abolish it altogether and you can maintain the sort of muscles that somebody else might have 20 years earlier. So all that is possible. It is not an inevitable part of ageing, but it, to take it broadly and kind of blame individuals for it themselves, I think is going a bit far, Keith. It's better framed that this is something that you can do something about and prevent. And it's certainly true. And as one of the people that you quoted, I think, in that study, which um, Maria mm-hmm. Fiatroni Singh of the University of Sydney, she showed that you can actually help this phenomenon even into people's 90s when they're already frail. So it's not just into the 70s, it's beyond that. It's, it's never hopeless. That's right. But Keith's comment did make me sort of have a bit of a look for myself. And I was really interested to see what changes are happening in people's bodies as they age that does contribute to sarcopenia. And there's differences in your metabolism. There's difference in your oxygen supply to your muscles. There's differences in the types of fibres in your muscles, and they sort of move towards being those slower moving fibres, all of which can contribute to this loss of strength. But like you say, the answer is sufficient protein and weight training exercise to keep those muscles strong. That's right. And arthritis is another reason why people go off their exercise. But it's shown that if you keep jogging on hard surfaces and have high impact, you can even prevent or minimise the effects of arthritis. So lots of things that you can do. And one final question from Todd. Do you feel like there's any value in gene sites like 23andMe for disease risk assessment? Oh, very crudely, probably. Um, 23andMe and other sites had had a problem a couple of years ago. can't remember exactly when. COVID-19 every month is a year, so I'm not really <laughs> sure. But it's a couple of years ago, they were uh, held up by the regulators because they were giving too much disease risk assessment. They can probably tell you whether you've got APOE4, which might increase your risk of dementia unless you keep your cardiac risk factors there. There are some... Uh, elements that can do that. You can maybe pick up breast cancer genes, but I'm not sure that they do that. I'm not totally aware how they've changed over the time, but it's not a great way to assess it. The best thing to know here about disease risk is to know what happens in your family and to know what people died of in your family. And if there's a pattern in your family of early death, and these days early death could be under 65, In the old days, they used to say under 50. But if there's a pattern of coronary heart disease in your family and people die young, you need to get checked up as young as possible if you know that pattern exists. And you and your GP can decide whether or not you need genetic counselling. But if you know that that pattern exists, then there are cardiologists who are experts in in this sort of area who can look for particular lipid tests and so on that you might have particularly high that don't form the normal set of lipid blood fat tests that your GP might do. And if there's cancer in your family at an earlier age, so cancer runs, uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer and other things, then that is the sort of situation where you might want to discuss with your GP getting referred to a cancer genetic service. And then they would do a much more rational assessment. And often it doesn't involve a blood test because if there's breast cancer, for example, running in your family and there's two or three people of it, what are you going to do if you don't come up positive for BRCA1 or BRCA2, the two commonest breast cancer genes? Because often that risk is maybe several genes working together. Mm. So what you need to do as a woman at risk of breast cancer because it runs in your family is actually early checking of your breasts 
there are ways of actually protocols there, maybe MRI scans, ultrasound, that sort of thing. And maybe even if it's very high and you're still negative, still thinking through with the genetic counsellors whether or not you think of a prophylactic mastectomy after you've had your children. Those are the sorts of things. And the tests themselves help a bit, but not, they're not the complete story. Again, it's common sense. If it's running in your family, it's running in your family. The genetic tests may help, but just because they're negative doesn't mean you're not carrying a genetic risk. Mm. Well, thank you all for your questions and comments, and we welcome more and more and more. Please email us at healthreport at abc.net.au. And we'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.